Today's podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Surface Pro gives you the power you need when you're out and about. It has a super fast processor and an all-day battery life, so you can play up to 13.5 hours of video without needing to charge. It's light enough to take anywhere, and it works with your iPhone, so it's synced with your life. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. ever. We are also brought to you yes. by TheRinger.com. What a good website. We have some great articles on the site, including coverage on The Bachelor's dramatic and truly troubling finale from earlier this week. Can't stop thinking about it. No. Can't stop thinking about uh, Do you want me to leave? Ari, do you need me to leave? <laughs> that piece of human excrement. Really terrible stuff. Also, we have a ton of podcasts yes. that you can listen to right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. For example, this week's Larry Wilmore Black on the Air features the one and only Forrest Whitaker. You might have recently seen him, Black Panther. Stripping the strength of the Black Panther away from T'Challa. Plus, on the video side, we have a director's commentary on Blades of Glory with none other than Olympic medalist Alex and Maya Shibitani, a.k.a. the Shibsibs. So go check out that on The Ringer's YouTube channel or our social media pages. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. You ever wonder to yourself how a guy with unbreakable skin manages to reach orgasm? I do. That's Luke Cage, guys. So if you've never thought thoughts like that, <laughs> go check out House Carbs. Mmm, carbs. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you cannot recite from memory yes. every brand of bourbon that Jessica Jones guzzled in season Delicious. one. Delicious. Please proceed with caution. And now, binge mode. Guilt makes people do stupid shit. I'm not guilty. It's not my fault. See, I hate that. I want everything to be my fault. Good or bad. It means I have some control. You don't. Obviously. But it keeps me dreaming I can change things for people. And welcome to Binge Mode. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. What a good website. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished bringing his neighbors some freshly <sighs> baked banana bread. I love banana bread. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester. Yes. Jason Concepcion. Mal, I don't know what you put in this banana bread, but it's like crack. Wait, is it crack? Nutmeg. Mmm. Before we trade more recipes involving crack... Some quick reminders, every Thursday on Binge Mode Weekly, we'll be diving deep into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment in this spring. We'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter! Yes! You'll be able to find both Weekly and Harry Potter on the same feed, so stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review us! Yes! Please! We have one more exciting announcement. We'll be at this spring's Con of Thrones in Dallas, Texas. More yes. details to come We'd love to see you guys there. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our new Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans like you. It is wild in there. Both experiences will be more enjoyable if, unlike Jessica, you remember to charge your phone. And make sure your phone charger is actually plugged into the wall. She Come struggles on, with that guys. Too. Let's eat obvious stuff. Speaking of Jessica. Yes. The long-awaited long -awaited. second season of Jessica Jones drops on Netflix today. March 8th, yes. which is International Women's Day. But 
It has been two and a half years since we were jumping into fire escapes with our girl. It's been a while. So to help everyone freshen up on that hit debut season and prep for the sophomore campaign, we're diving deep into Jessica Jones season one on today's Binge Mode Weekly. Again, spoiler warning for today's binge as always. We will be going deep on details from season one and the wider comic book canon and some other stuff just from the Marvelverse at large. So... Pull on your boots and your leather jacket, because it's time to head to Hell's Kitchen. Jason? Yes? I don't flirt. Yes. I just say what I want, and I want us to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in season one of Jessica Jones, because 13 episodes is a a damn It's about four too many, if we're being honest. (laughs) It is a lot, and also 2015 was a long time ago, so we're not going to hit every single plot point, but broad strokes here. Let's take a quick trip through the park with Malcolm down our very own King's Road. Jessica Jones is a private eye with superpowers and a mysterious past. She takes on the case of Hope Schlotman. Hope is an NYU student who began acting strangely, unlike herself, and then she disappeared. Jones is haunted by something and uses alcohol to deaden her feelings. Conveniently, Luke Cage, who she's spying on for reasons which we will learn later, is a bartender right across the street. And the two start a physical relationship. Mm, boy, do they. Boy, howdy, do they. <laughs> boy, By the way, do they. and I'll get into this more later, just like the comic books. Boy, do they. Some of my favorite scenes from Jessica Jones season one. Jessica discovers that Hope has been kidnapped by Kilgrave. That's right. A.K.A. Barty Crouch Jr. <laughs> you might know him as Barty Crouch Jr. In a Jr. much more reserved performance by David Tennant. <laughs> a man with mind control abilities. He once, and for quite some time, held Jessica against her will. And now Jessica is terrified because he's back. She had thought that he was dead. He is not. Her adoptive sister and best friend, Trish, a talk radio host, convinces Jessica to continue with the case. Jessica finds Hope, who, still under Kilgrave's control, murders her own parents in the elevator of Jessica's building. Very troubling, by the way. As you would say, tough stuff. Tough (laughs) stuff. (laughs) <laughs> it's really tough stuff. Jerry Hogarth, the wealthy and connected lawyer who hires out Jones for cases, agrees to represent Hope. Hogarth is in the midst of an acrimonious divorce from her wife, Wendy. Trish, as a favor to Hogarth, has Hope on her radio show. Trish asks Kilgrave's victims to come forward, call into the show. Then she roasts him mercilessly on the air. Enraged, Kilgrave takes control of a cop, Will Simpson, and sends him to murder Trish. Trish can handle herself. They fight for a while. But in the end, Jessica arrives, the ultimate moment, and rescues Trish. Jones traces Kilgrave back to an apartment where she discovers through dozens of creepy photographs that Kilgrave has been spying on her. Jessica is consumed by guilt because back when she was under Kilgrave's control, she murdered Luke's wife, Reva. Luke eventually discovers this after Jessica reveals the information to him to save another man's life, and he breaks it off. Desperate to catch Kilgrave, Jones hatches a truly wild plan. Get sent to prison, so when Kilgrave comes for her, he'll be caught on video controlling people, thus clearing hope and affording closure to his various victims. Jessica goes to a police station where she confesses to a murder that was perpetrated by Kilgrave, by the way. R.I.P. Reuben. Yeah. Tiny, tiny bells for Reuben. (laughs) Tough stuff. Kilgrave is obsessed with Jones. He manipulates her into following him to his lair, which is the Jones family home. Jessica spends days with Kilgrave in her childhood home. 
weird stuff. He reveals that his powers are the product of experiments that his parents performed on him as a child. Of course, we will learn in time that it is not quite as simple as that. Jessica, while Kilgrave is trying to get her to fall in love with him, basically, right. to actually live like a domestic fallacy with him, yeah. she's like, let's let's try something different here. Why don't you try to use your powers for good? And they go out into the world and he helps solve a hostage situation. But nothing is easy. Nothing no. is simple. Simpson had tracked Kilgrave to this home and he had planted a bomb in the basement. Jessica stopped him from using the bomb. But eventually we find out that Kilgrave takes this bomb and he turns it around and uses it as a weapon. Simpson is injured by his yep. own bomb and in the process of recovering from his wounds at the hospital, becomes addicted to experimental <laughs> drugs that make him terrifyingly strong yep. while warping his mind. This is when this mysterious government body, yep. IGH, Give me a red. comes into play. But you need a blue. Give me a blue. Jones slips Kilgrave a Mickey, poisons him, and captures him. She places him in the soundproof room so his, he can't use his powers. There's a glass wall there. She's got him on camera. There's water in the, on the bottom of the room, and electricity runs through it, and she can electrify him at any time, and she plans to torture him until he reveals the extent of his powers on camera. Through this process, while discovering the background of Kilgrave, she realizes that she's also immune to his powers, which work kind of like a virus. Jessica, however, is not the only other person in this former CDC facility, and some people like Jerry Hogarth, are yeah. not made of the strongest stuff like our girl Jessica is. Jerry cuts that wire. And in the course of confronting Kilgrave with his parents and attempting to get this confession on tape, the wire doesn't work. Things don't go as planned. A mad bit of chaos ensues. Yeah. And Kilgrave escapes. Luke, now under Kilgrave's control, attacks Jessica. She fights him off, but Luke is gravely injured. That's what happens when someone shoots you in the head. Even if you have even if you have the skin, unbreakable skin, the unbreakable out. skin actually, you know what? There's a breaking point. It can only do so much. Shotgun to the chin that will throw you for a loop. The needle in the eye to like didn't need alleviate to see that. the brain pressure. That was, was gross. Very vile. That was truly gross. <laughs> very vile. Eventually, Jessica and Trish track Kilgrave to a yacht. They do this, of course. Thanks in part to Kilgrave, who's leaving a trail of bodies yeah. and people he has commanded and clues for Jessica to find the goldfish, the name of the yacht, another little Easter egg, former name of a, of a comic, right? Yeah. Your boy Bendis. Kilgrave takes Trish prisoner. He has been trying to enhance his powers because we learn that he knows as well that Jessica is immune to him. She's not the only one who knows. How can he overcome this? How can he spread the reach of his powers? Dad, can you make me stronger? Well, we don't know heading into this final confrontation if he's strong enough. Right. And after he takes Trish prisoner, Jessica kind of tricks him yeah. into thinking that she is, in fact, under his control again, that he has won. And Kilgrave, believing that he is in command again, tries to make her say, I love you. But Jessica has faked him out. She kills him by snapping his neck. Quite satisfying, actually. It is. Mal. Yeah. They say everyone's born a hero, but if you let it, life will push you over the line until you are a villain. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end of a needle in your eye. 
in Metro General's useless hospital, those useless hospital needles that can't even penetrate the skin of a man with unbreakable skin. The defining theme of season one of Jessica Jones's control. One of my favorite themes, really in stories, is the idea of choice agency and of how a character responds to trauma. Oftentimes, and it's the case certainly with this show, the thing that separates the villain from the hero, who are both powered and both experience terrible things in their lives, is just the way they respond to that trauma, to those terrible things. Do they seek to pass on that pain to other people? Do they take the things that happen to them as a license to do things to other people? This terrible thing happened to me. Don't you understand? And now, you know, I, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Or do they react with kindness and try and protect people from things? I mean, this like how many Harry Potter references can we make about every subject <laughs> like from now until it's hot, but not the hottest? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we like to talk about Harry Potter. We you do. know, you know that at this point, <laughs> and it's on our minds right now because yes. the weather's almost hot. We're thinking about not it a the lot. hottest though, not the hottest yet. We're getting ready, and so we are going to make a lot of Harry Potter references, even when we're not actually doing the Harry Potter pods. But we respect the fact that some of you guys are in the process of consuming the story for the first time, and so yeah. when we're about to drop some Harry intel into a pod that isn't about Harry, we're going to give you a little. Spoiler warning sound effect. Think of this as our Muffliato charm. Yes. For you, guarding your delicate ears, should you <laughs> so choose to have them guarded. Isaac? Akio, spoiler warning! Harry Potter and Tom Riddle. I've been thinking about this for a few months now. Both orphans, both not really knowing where they came from, both discovered that there's something special about them and then grew up under the tutelage of Dumbledore, but one turned exceptionally evil and one, you know, after fits and starts, obviously a hero. It is our choices. It's our choices. You know, when Harry points that out to Dumbledore in, in Chamber of Secrets because Tom Riddle says to Harry, you know, yeah. you must have noticed these similarities and Harry can't really shake that idea. Yeah. When he brings it up to Dumbledore, we get the classic Dumbledore moment about how it's our choices, not our abilities. And Jessica Jones takes choice and ability and intertwines them yes. in a way that, as you're saying, some of our favorite stories do. You know, one of the reasons that this show was so critically acclaimed and was received so favorably when it first aired in 2015 is because it was pretty overt with its yeah. thematic explorations. Yeah. There was also very justifiably a lot of like, this woman is kicking ass yes. cheering. And also because her powers are slightly more normal, like on right. the scale of how... She fly a little bit and she's very strong. She calls strong. it guided falling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's strong and she can yeah. jump. She is choosing to work as a PI and to live like a fairly normal life. I mean, heavy air quotes around fairly normal, right. but in many ways, she's just trying to be a person in the world. She's really struggling with the idea of, do I even want to be a hero? Trish was really the one, you know, right. pushing her toward the life of a hero, the life of a vigilante. And we learned through the process of flashbacks that Jessica used to be a little more open to that idea right. than when we first meet her. And what was one of the things that changed? Well, what happened in between was Kilgrave took control of her. We will learn in time over the course of the season that Kilgrave found her when she was acting the hero, when yes. she was stopping 
a mugging on Malcolm in the street, she went up to this person who was helpless, who was yeah. not in control. Her just observational instinct after seeing somebody who couldn't take his fate into his own hands was to help that person, to take a victim and to make him safe. Yes. Kilgrave saw that and he preyed on her instantly because he saw the power and he wanted to use it. Also, he will tell you at least that he's in love with her. Right. The attraction is genuine and that the love is real. But of course, she's also a pawn that he wants to use. She's a gateway to a certain type of life. And this is somebody, Kilgrave, who's had his own powers since he was a kid. Yeah. So- The way that this story deals with the matters of choice and agency and guilt and shame, it's there in really every level. The hero, the villain, the sidekicks, everybody is grappling with these matters. You know, what are you? Who are you if you're not in command of your actions? You know, if you're robbed of your free will, are you even yourself any longer? And one of the things that the show does so well, I think, is not limit it to that one moment. When Kilgrave is mind controlling you or some other factor in your life, you know, your mother, your greedy mother when you're a kid, whatever the specifics might be, it's not just about that moment. It's about the ripple effect on the rest of your life. You know, will you be forever altered by that trauma? You can regain control, but the show asks us to consider whether the guilt and shame that you develop from losing control in the first place ever really go away. That's what makes Kilgrave such an effective and terrifying villain. I think probably the most effective villain, I mean, certainly the most effective villain like across Marvel until Black Panther, I think. Just really a lot to think about there because, you know, when you have power, by definition, other people are weaker than you. How people in life respond to people with less power than them is how we define the nature of a person, essentially. And Kilgrave, he loves to manipulate. He needs to do it. I mean, just the way he tries to manipulate Jessica, first of all, by being like, I love you. And then the kind of sick fascination he has with getting her to do what he wants, but without using his power, because then it would be real, even though the way he's doing that is like leveraging violence and pain of other people, of people she cares about, to get her to do a thing that he wants her to do. I mean, there's nothing scarier than the idea of mind control as a power. I nothing think more invasive. Nothing. I think it's what you just said is really interesting because it it speaks to how even somebody as lost and warped as Kilgrave still sort of has to lie to himself. Right. Like He can't think that I'm a bad guy. I'm not really a bad guy. Right. He wanted to do it. Right. Perspective is very real. Yes. And from his perspective, it's actually, it seems quite easy for him in any given moment to try to rationalize a given transgression. I've never killed anybody. I just get other people to do these things, but I've never gotten my hands dirty directly. And thus, I must be the hero, not the villain. The villain always thinks he's the hero. This is something we revisit time and time again. And like what you're saying about, you know, he wants Jessica to choose. You know, he knows at this point that he doesn't have the power over her. When she killed Riva and then he said, Jessica, come back. Jessica, stay put. And she walks away. He knows in that moment that the control is over, that the bond is broken, he can't fully allow himself to accept that. It has to be rationalized internally and externally as, well, if she chooses, it will be more powerful because just accepting that he's not in control would be a failure. And again, you know, if we look to Harry, which we (laughs) we must. Which we must and we will continue to do. When you say, you know, there's nothing more terrifying than losing yourself. There's nothing more frightening in a villain than the ability for that villain to take control. 
it's no accident that one of the three unforgivable curses, one right. of the three curses, is so heinous. Shouts to Barty Crouch Jr. It is labeled as unforgivable right. is the imperious curse, which is taking control of somebody else, making them your pawn, your plaything. David Tennant. Lick of the lips. Getting a little typecast here. <laughs> Now, the portrayals of Barty Crouch Jr. and Kilgrave are very different, but he does do the lip lick for both. And ultimately, both of those characters are relying on mind control. Spoiler alert, It is a shocking moment. More spoilers. It is a shocking moment when Harry is doing the Gringotts heist, uses the Imperius for the first time. It is like, you are like, whoa, whoa. Whoa, in the way that she describes it, JK describes it as like a strange feeling in his arm. It's just truly one of those moments you're like, whoa. We're going to talk about this a little bit later with yeah. Jessica and some of the times that she, if you were just examining her actions in a vacuum, finds herself sort of acting like the villain. Yes. But, you know, with Harry in that example you just raised and with some of the things we'll discuss with Jessica, it's kind of this question we return to often of like, does intention matter? Yeah. And... I think that one of the things that this story and this show argues is no. I agree with that. I think that there is something about mind control that is inherently unethical in almost any situation, unless someone has a knife to your throat. Right. And in that moment, you are about to die. There's almost no other reason to use it that you can write off as being fine. Like across fiction, robbing someone of their free will is just heinous. Think about Professor X, most yes. powerful telepath in the Marvel Universe, usually thought of this saintly figure. Also a member of my championship superhero draft team. <laughs> it like basically cannot be stopped unless you've got the Magneto helmet. Indefatigable champion of I just inclusion. would like the record to state that I I did stop the team, Amanda's, that had the Magneto incredible. helmet. But continue. Sorry, the this floor is incredible. continue. No, I mean, would you like to continue <laughs> to talk about your strategy? Indefatigable champion of inclusion, human-mutant relations, was also very low-key to medium-key to high-key a scumbag. Some of his misdeeds include, from the comics, <gasps> mind-controlling his girlfriend and nurse into not leaving him, which mm. is like truly not good not good good. erased or otherwise altered the memories of numerous people friends and foes alike including beast gene gray many times and wolverine a bunch of times and hid the existence of cyclops's brother from him for like basically no apparent reason also like enslaved danger room after the danger room apparatus had become sentient charles not a great dude minority port is another minority port i was thinking about so does it count as an ethical violation of someone's free will if you're acting on information that comes from the future? Like if I look into the future and I see that Sean Yu is about to fuck up the football fantasy league <laughs> and I stop him, <laughs> right? And I stop him. I wish you would. <laughs> is that a violation or does the existence of information from the future mean that free will actually doesn't exist and therefore that's okay? The, I mean- Interesting. Very interesting moral quandary there. Well, again, it's like, what is the key variable? What matters most? Is it the presence of the information itself? Right. Like, is it what you know? Is it how you know it? Or is it what you choose to do with it? How reliable is this information? Right. I think, while I would love for you to stop my nemesis, Sean Yu, from... (laughs) (laughs) just obliterating everything pure and sacred and good about a fantasy sports league. I would say that he 
as a human being, yes, with agency and free will, has the right, the inherent natural right to fuck up badly on his own without and someone stopping him. He exercised it. <laughs> anyway, so this is a theme throughout. It's a trope for a reason. It's a trope because it is so scary. It is scary. There are a few things in life as central to our humanity than our ability to make decisions about how we live our lives. Yeah. And so the prospect of that being taken away from you for any reason, like, and it, you know what's interesting is, let's think about an example where this is presented as being cool. Right. Star Wars. Yeah. Jedi. Right. That is something where you Referenced brought, in this show quite brilliantly, by yes, the way. Yes. This is something where as a kid- Yeah, you're like, adult, this is great. This, you're like, wow. Yeah. What if I could just wave my hand at someone? Not the droids you're looking for. Right. This is not the runtime you're looking for, Isaac. Right. <laughs> just let us go. Like millions of people watch Star Wars movies and point. think, oh, interesting. If my intentions are pure, if the Jedi intentions are pure, does that give them the right? At the end of the day, they're still playing God. Yes. You know, who are they or you or anyone to decide. I think that this power speaks to something essential about the idea of power in general. You know, I think about like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, right? right? He uses the ring to escape a couple of really almost deadly encounters. And then he kind of can't stop using it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I would imagine if you had a power like this to get somebody to do what you want, you'd be like, you'd use it for something small at first, maybe. And then where is the line? Where would you stop? You know, like like Voldy, like Moldy Voldy says, Moldy there is no good and evil. There is only power in those two weeks. Could you say it. Moldy Voldy? Does that get around the taboo? If you say Moldy Voldy, <laughs> why don't people just do that instead of saying he who must not be named? Why don't you say Moldy Voldy? <laughs> Let's ask Peeves. <laughs> I would love to do an entire podcast to Peeves. Oh, Potter, you rotter. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the characters with a little more specificity yeah. here because we're speaking in generalities here right. and that is worth doing because these themes are, are broad and apply to not only many characters in Jessica Jones and many stories across culture, but what about those characters? What about the people who define this story in this season of television? Jessica, you noted before that Jessica and Kilgrave have in some ways similar origins. Right. Let's dive a little deeper into each of their backgrounds and then we'll get to some of the side characters. Jessica. Jessica. How did Jessica become Jessica? We know that her powers, she wasn't born with them. She acquired them somehow. The show is pretty vague about it. I'll get into more about what we think happened when we talk about Jessica Jones and her creator, Brian Michael Bendis. We get some vague flashes about something about a car accident, maybe some uh, experiments. And then presto, we get a flashback of young Jessica and young Trish. Right. And all of a sudden, Jessica has discovered that she is incredibly strong. She can lift like this slab, slab of marble, of marble. over yeah. her head. And she's like, wait, hold I assume that her origin will be heavily based on her comics origin, which is spoiler chemical exposure. Certainly the trailer for season two appears to hint at this. Right. And the IGH plot of season one hints yes, at, at much more, more of this of to come in season two. I think what's worth noting here is that while we do not yet possess all of the information the about right. how she is a superhero was created. We know something that is even more fundamental than what gave her something. We know what she lost. We know what was taken away from her. That accident that led to her transformation transformed her life in, in other crucial ways. Specifically, her parents and her brother were killed in that accident. And when we see flashbacks of the accident, which we get in snippets across time, we're starting to piece together what happened. We learned that her actions directly contributed to this. You know, you got to get more than one Game Boy. 
for the family. That was one of my main takeaways <laughs> oh here. Oh my gosh. Children cannot share, get more than one Game Boy. But her actions directly contributed to this fatal accident. Yeah. And so she is carrying around not only her survivor's guilt, though of course she doesn't understand yet how she survived, right. but the guilt of her role in causing this in the first place. And her family's death leaves this void that only that guilt and that shame fill for yeah. years and years of her life, long before Kilgrave ever comes into her life. That's right. She is controlled in many ways by how that accident, by how that moment defined her. Kilgrave's origin on the name Kilgrave. Great. Love this stuff. Great couple of lines in the show. Jessica is roasting the name Kilgrave. She says, oh, was murder corpse taken? Claire the Nightner says, I mean, why not just snuff carcass? I feel like most people would not immediately land on snuff carcass. Let me just say one thing. Just known for Claire. In the comics, <laughs> his name is Zebediah Kilgrave. Right. And he goes by the purple man because his skin by the chemical processes that he went through. But this kind of roasting of Kilgrave raises a good point about what kind of makes Marvel's approach so notable and that's this willingness to be self-referential in a way that's really playful mm -hmm. i mean kilgrave is a stupid freaking name and they're just like yeah kilgrave what a dumb name <laughs> i've always wondered something i've always wondered while reading the comics is like why magneto named his first team the brotherhood of evil mutants it's like it's this <laughs> terrible branding now everyone knows what you're up to guys so you can't put evil in the name there's the masters of evil too who are like fought against the avengers a bunch of times it's like guys come on what about death eaters <laughs> also yeah this is what I, well let me they're not hiding anything That's, the death eaters yeah. are trying to like the brotherhood of evil the mutants is just, just right out there come on guys it's also like scarlet witch was in the brotherhood like can we like make it non-gender specific anyway Kilgrave. Got his powers because his parents, seeking to halt a neurodegenerative disease that he had, just pumped him full of these chemicals in a very painful and frankly, like, brutal process that didn't seem to comport with any kind of, like, medical strictures at all. It's like surgeries, invasive brain surgeries. And a lot of it is just, like, push his head down on a desk and put Stick a, a needle, needle into his, his spine. Like, yeah. this is the best we can do? Poor and, Kevin. And I will say this, like... Something of noted in the way we define like who is good and bad and who is evil and a villain, a person who has power but sees themselves as weak is the villain. And that's what Kilgrave is and does. He sees himself as a person who was taken advantage of, who was weak and was put upon by his parents, who experimented on him, thinking that they were saving him. And now this gives him license to act in the way he does. This brings up a great point, which is how you control yourself matters. It's not just how you control other people. Just like Jessica, he was made into this thing. He was made into this. But unlike her, he chooses to use his powers to manipulate and exploit other people rather than protect them right. from power stronger than themselves. And there's also such a cap on even his own bit of bullshit yeah. when he's trying to convince Jessica and and probably himself that he was a victim of what his parents did to him. Well, when his parents come back into his life, and that is through Jessica's attempt yes. to control the situation. But so he knows, Kilgrave knows Jessica's immune to his power. Kilgrave's father 
granted, his first instinct was to say, dad, cut your heart out. But once that <laughs> yeah. didn't work and he is able to take his father prisoner again and get him back under his control, his instinct there is help make me stronger. Yeah. That thing that I keep pointing to to say, right. I was the victim. You made me this. You sticking do needles it into my spine. Do it again. Yeah. Do it in a way that now I am in control of and I sign off on and I am able to say, well, the intention here is mine. And so suddenly it's okay. But you can't have it both ways. Or can you? That's again, like where we have to examine the context. Yes. If he has the free will to say, I want you to do this to me, does that necessarily negate him pointing to the, in essence, same experiment and say, they did that against my will. I had no say in that. It wasn't my choice. And thus it was wrong. Or does the fact that he's then basically opting into that same procedure totally erase any ground he has to stand on when yep. he's relitigating his past? And then there are, of course, all of these other characters yes. who are not in possession of superpowers. Some of them are, Luke, but some of them are not. And yet control remains a consistent through line yes. across the season and across the characters. Trish and her mother, for example. Trish's story is... Also, one of loss and control. You know, she doesn't have an absent mother. She's not robbed of her parents the way that Jessica was. But having her mother in her life is the thing that saps her of her free will. Trisha's mother, driven by this greed and by this desire for money and fame, completely robs Trish of anything remotely resembling a normal childhood. She forces Trish to basically take on Jessica as a prop. You know, yes. they become best friends. They become, in essence, sisters. But it didn't start out this way. Trish had to allow this person to come into her home so that they could basically get photo ops out of it so that she could be positioned in the press as a giving, caring person and earn more fame as a result. Trish's mother turns her into a bulimic. She's trying to make her throw up. This is a child yeah. that she's doing this to so that she can be thin and stay pretty for the cameras. It's absolutely disgusting. You know, she treats Patsy, Patsy Walker is Trisha's alter ego, as a commodity. Not only not as her daughter, but not even as a person. She's a thing. She's something to profit off of. And so many of Trisha's choices when we are with her in the present day, but also every moment in between in her life have stemmed from that abuse and from her mother robbing her of her free will. Luke and Riva, his yes. late wife. So we learn from the Luke Cage series, their background, Luke was sent to prison. There he met Riva, a counselor. There's something really tragic about the idea of a person with unbreakable skin who is so strong, who could not, protect like the person closest to him and right. that is the event that for a time really defines the way luke approaches life he is haunted by this he wants to find out what happened of course he's driven to find the perpetrators of of his wife's death it's really ironic to see a person who's like who's as strong as luke who's basically blind to the things that are going on has no idea like what happened is only responsive to events, can only respond to events as they happen to him. A, a fight breaks out in the bar. Somebody attacks him in the street. But he can't find out the thing that happened to the person closest to him. It's really tragic. One of the truest tragedies there is that it's not just that he can't trust other people yeah. or the information around him and that he, he isn't 
able to gain the knowledge that he's seeking, he will come to feel like he can't trust himself. Right. Because think of the agony and the pain of realizing that the person that you are sleeping with, right. the person who you... because He says this too, him. I've been inside you. Yes, right. How yeah. could you let me yeah. get that close to you? We see when Jessica is... Because she... One of our introductions to the character is that she is basically watching Luke obsessively. She's haunted by what she did to Rivan again. She's so haunted by it that it was the thing that finally freed her of Kilgrave's control because it was such a core violation yeah. of who she was as a person to do what she did. We know she cares, but we know that she's also caring in part because of her guilt. What about Luke? Well, we see him through Jessica's eyes. All of these one-night stands, all of these women. It's not necessarily about the sex for him. Jessica finally can't penetrate his skin, but you can penetrate his heart, you know? Wow. And she got in there, Jay. Incredible. And the shame and agony that he feels when he realizes that the person he finally let in after all this time is the person who killed his wife. Yeah. As rational as he wants to be about this whole thing, he cannot accept the fact that her being under Kilgrave's control, like, in any way absolves her from what she did because it's too painful for him. It's too much of a violation in his own mind of his own judgment and his own choices. And it's actually something he's only able to move beyond when Kilgrave takes control of him and he is able to experience firsthand how real that prison is. Hogarth. Her mistress, Pam, Ugh, and her wife, soon to be ex-wife, soon to be late wife, Wendy. What a mess. Yeah. The issues of control here are murky, complex, and just kind of troubling all around. Hogarth has left Wendy for Pam, who is her underling. Wendy is attempting to use the embarrassment of that relationship to leverage Hogarth into an outcome that she wants. Hogarth is trying to stop that from happening, is using Jessica to talk to Wendy to get her to sign the papers. Jessica uses force on Wendy, hangs her over like a subway track in order to get her to sign the divorce papers. The entire trio is a warped examination of control and intention in a way that is actually uh, some of the most insightful stuff in the story because it's so grounded and down to earth. Right. Both in the way of how these people relate to each other and how they relate to the wider story and the primary players of the season. It can be hard sometimes when you're watching a comic book story, a superhero story, to relate to what's happening and to what you're witnessing because you're not going to develop super strength. You're not going to develop the ability to fly or, you know, guided falling. (laughs) Guided falling. Hopefully, you're also not caught up in a horrendous love triangle like this, but that is ultimately real life shit. You know, somebody saying, you did this thing at your job. You know, Wendy uses jury manipulation as the stick (laughs) with Hogarth. And a marital transgression, a professional transgression, those are things that people watching at home can say like, oh, wow, that's scary shit. Like, you have to think about that as something that happens to regular people, whether or not they have superpowers. And that is also one of the things that the show does so effectively is like, again, it just reminds you that this isn't just about people with quote unquote special abilities. This is just about people. People have, you have power in your everyday life, in your relationships with people that you don't think of as power, whatever that leverage might be, economic, your influence of your personality, whatever it is. And people use that all the time. And in some cases we might call that charm. Right. 
in other cases, you know, intimidation. And I think examining that is needed and really, really interesting and at times like troubling. There's that really interesting moment where Wendy and Hogarth are confronting each other Mm. and Hogarth, in essence, says, you never cared about money before. Why now? Because Wendy's going after like a initially, you know, 75%. She ups that mark at at one point, but 75% of of Hogarth's holdings. That's a lot of dough. You didn't care about this. Why do you care about this now? And we never actually have cause to believe that Wendy does care about the money. It's more about, again, gaining control over the situation, gaining power that somebody else has. And one of the things that she says to Hogarth in answer is, I put my whole life on hold for you. You know, I never got to basically do the things and be the person that I initially intended to be because it was always about me putting you through law school, me supporting your goals. And that moment when the fact that Wendy basically didn't make any money of her own because she's helping poor people. She's doing something noble with her life. Hogarth is a shark. She's the vicious lawyer who will stop at nothing to get what she wants. You know, she doesn't want to help Hope at first when Jessica asks why. I don't take losers. This is a loser. Like, Hogarth (laughs) is disgusting. She's in some ways as despicable as any character on the show. And that conversation, that moment where you have to think about how just asking your partner to change something about that person's career goals, like, that's really real shit. Again, it's just a hallmark to the depth of storytelling in the show and the consistency of how the theme is applied. And then there's your boy Simpson. Oh, Simpson, a.k.a. (laughs) Nuke. We'll talk about him more in a bit. Simpson, first of all, bad dye job with the hair. Awful. Can we not do that? What are we doing What are we doing that? Like, there's no way as a New York police sergeant that you you could get away with that at the station house. That's like Matt Damon Goodwill hunting hair. (laughs) Really bad, my guy. You know, how do you respond when someone not only robs you of your agency, but forces you to commit heinous acts. You know, he, Kilgrave takes control of Simpson, sends him to Trisha's house under the guise of, you know, just checking up on things as a police officer. And he really brutally attacks Trish and is moments away from strangling her to death. How do you deal with that? Simpson deals with it by seeking revenge going outside the law in numerous cases in order to put Kilgrave down whatever the cost. I'll blow up a house if that's what it takes to take this guy out. He shoots Clemens in the head at one point. And I think in many ways, the purpose of Simpson's character is to get us to ask ourselves what the limits of sympathy and understanding are. You know, initially you're on his side because he was violated too and you want him to be able to feel at peace in his own skin and in his own life again but he isn't able to identify when he is becoming the thing he hates and that's that's another theme in the story and again we'll get to that more with jessica later but at some point, you become the monster that you're trying to stop and the nature of your actions determine that whether or not, again, your intentions are noble. It doesn't matter if the thing that you're doing is killing other innocent people who are also trying to help. This is why the device of the Kilgrave support group is really a brilliant touch for this story because it forces you to examine the effects of power wielded, you know, against people's will. Like, wh- what does that do to a person? You don't just order somebody to do something, take control of their mind. Even just making them do small things 
inconsequential things you like a person with power would say, Kilgrave might think, and then walk away and then expect that there aren't lasting effects. The people who were under Kilgrave's control are forever changed by what happened to them. And they need to talk it out in a way that's, it's really compelling to watch that stuff, to watch them like share these memories of like, I, he made me do this. He made me do that. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like. That's one of the reasons I really like Malcolm's character is because, you know, he, we don't get to see Malcolm before Kilgrave completely uprooted his life, but we see what Kilgrave did to him and he robbed him of everything that he had and was. He turned him into an addict. He yeah. turned him into a spy against Jessica. Malcolm will learn is the one who's taking those photographs of Jessica. And his arc is another reminder that control can come in many forms. Right. You know, there's the actual mind control that Kilgrave is exerting. But what happens when those 12 hours run out? The needle. Yeah. You know, Kilgrave has turned Malcolm into somebody who controls himself in the way that Kilgrave wants, even when he's not there to spread the virus and to use the pheromones because he knows he's going to show up every morning for his fix. He's going to arrive to the park so that he can get the new packet of drugs that Kilgrave has for him. That's terrifying. And then to see Malcolm when he comes out of this struggle in a very authentic way from wanting to get away from Jessica, who is in many ways a toxic presence and a cancer and someone who, as she'll note, people who are in her life tend to die. And also to want to help her and yeah. to not be able to abandon her and to know the part of the way that he can cope with his own trauma is to become the leader of this support group and to help other people deal with their pain and process it and to acknowledge that it's never going to go away and that they have to be able to say that out loud so that they can start to hopefully process it and hopefully overcome it. And then, of course, there's hope. And what she represents. You know, this is another woman whose life was forever altered. Like, even in the absolute best case scenario for how Jessica could have helped Hope and what could have happened here, none of that is ever going away. Kilgrave's violations will forever mar her. Jessica relates to Hope more than any of his other victims because that's what Kilgrave knew was going to happen. That was the entire point. And that is truly vile. And awful to think about that he ruined this woman's life. He ruined her family just so that he could get Jessica's attention. You know, think about that and how despicable that is. His choice of hope, it's a deliberate effort to draw Jessica back in by reminding her of her own trauma and of what he did to her. And the way that that trauma and the way that the things he did to her manifest in her life and impact her arc that is ultimately the bulk of the season. You know, everything else yeah. that we just talked about gives it this heft and this depth. But this is Jessica's story. And there are so many different beats and so many different specific plot points. You know, again, the show is long. It's too long. long. It's too long. And it's heavy on subplots and sub arcs. I think, though, that you can argue that because of that, some of the things that seem maybe small and insignificant actually end up carrying like a surprising mm. amount of weight. And one of the ones that stands out to me in terms of this theme, is the moment when after Jessica has solved the Malcolm riddle, who's taking these photos, who's spying on her, Kilgrave says, I'll leave him be if you send me pictures yourself. And she starts texting him selfies every day at 10 a.m. And I just like was haunted by this. You know, the idea that in a way she's doing it because she's making the choice to do it but that's what's so horrible about it is that like he's still in control it's a puppeteer you know <clears throat> he 
is finding all of these ways to still command her and to still determine the course of the day and the course of her actions, even when he isn't actually mind controlling her. Yeah, everything to Kilgrave is some opportunity, some space to use as leverage against another person to get that person to do what he wants. He's never going to let Jessica have space. Right. The most insidious thing about him, as we mentioned, is this need to to make himself feel that she wants to do it, but she really doesn't. Like, I, well, I'm not using my powers, so you're just you're doing this of your own choice. Right. That's not the case. That is a chilling moment because it doesn't involve powers. It's so relatable. It's using a medium that we use every day. It's doing something that we can all picture happening. You know what I mean? It's truly chilling. I want to talk about, I think, a really, to me, the most brilliant subplot of this show, which is the moment when Jess- so Jessica tracks Kilgrave to the Jones family home. Mm-hmm. He let her know where that is, gave her the clues. She followed him there. And they're hanging out for a few days, and a hostage situation comes up. And Jessica's like, hey, let's try and use your powers for good. Why don't, why don't you just see what it's like once? Right. So they stroll over to this hostage situation. Mm-hmm. Kilgrave, you know, various cops are like, hold on, you can't go over there. And he's like, we're not the people you're looking for. He actually references the Star Wars Jedi line. They just blow past various cops that he mind controls. They waltz into the hostage situation. Kilgrave takes control of, of the man with the shotgun who's holding his family hostage. And they rescue the people. And as they're about to walk out, Kilgrave turns to the guy and goes, okay, now put the shotgun in your mouth and then pull the trigger. Right. And she's like, whoa, 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 don't do that. It's fascinating to think that, okay, he did this one good thing, right? Which is unquestionably a good thing. Objectively, probably saved people's lives. On the other hand, did he not, and with Jessica's blessing, mind control like four people on the way to this house? The usage of power, how we use it, how you use power when you have it and no one else does, is a fascinating question in life and in this story. I like, again, that the show acknowledges that head on. You know, we witness after that moment, Jessica basically says to Kilgrave, who is like riding high, he's like, that felt great. (laughs) Look what I did. Like, can I, is that what it feels like? Do I get a keep now? (laughs) And Jessica's basically like, I need a breather. And we see her go talk to Trish. And she poses this question, you know, if, you could use Kilgrave's powers for good. Would you? Should you? Do you have an obligation to help people if could you can? You, could you even do it? To me, that is the question. If you had Kilgrave's powers, is it even possible to use them for good? I think that where Jessica ultimately lands and where hopefully most viewers land, right. though, it's up to you. I guess that's part of the point is that it's up to you, is... Even if your intentions are pure, and even if you are trying to help people save lives, you are still violating something so fundamental about what it means to be a person. You know, you are taking away somebody's ability to make a choice, and that is wrong. The context doesn't determine whether that's wrong. The sheer reality of what you're doing does. And, you know... Jessica wants to help people, but she is also like pretty disenchanted with 
even just the idea of heroism. Right. She purposefully has opted out of this. Right. And has taken a line of work in which she does not have to apply her powers usually. What does being a hero even mean? Right. Is it that you're in control? Is it that because you have powers or money or tech or whatever it might be, you get to decide somebody else's fate? Or is it that you get to help them decide their own fate or see their own decisions through? And, you know, that question doesn't just apply to Jessica. That really applies yep. to any comic book story, to any hero or vigilante who's trying to take other people's lives into their own hands. Now, of course, there's like a logical extreme of this that is also terrifying, which is, okay, if everybody has free will fully, then isn't it just anarchy? Right. Like, there's a difference between laws and societal norms and basically like functioning government and society and robbing somebody of their ability to make a choice. You know, even like the mo so Jessica is only in this situation, only thinking about that, only having Kilgrave use his powers for good in the hostage situation and then discussing it with Trish because she went to the house in the first right. place. And Kilgrave using her house the last time she was happy, you know, and saying that to her, when when you would tell me about your life, this was where you said you were happiest, you know, your childhood home with your family, with your parents, with your brother when they were alive. And that is, is something that he thinks is great, yeah. right? He's like, I took a magnifying glass out and zoomed in on the photos and tried to find the exact CDs that you have in your binoculars or exactly where you left them on the windowsill. And I've restored the wall so that you can see the height where you yep. were against the woodwork. And every single thing he did was sickening to me because all of it was deliberate emotional manipulation, right? I want you to choose but I'm going to change everything about the scenario you find yourself in so that you choose the way I want you to. That's yeah. not choice. It's, not. it's important that the show clarifies that, that it isn't just when he's actually using the virus that he spreads to, to give you absolutely no ability to do anything other than what he's saying. It's all these other ways that he leverages stimuli in your past yeah. and your own history against you to try to corrupt you against yourself so that you do what he wants. And, you know, we do have to discuss briefly what Jessica either chooses to become or allows herself to become in an effort to combat this. You know, right. look at just what she does to Wendy, you know, dangling her over yes. subway tracks to try to get Wendy to sign Hogarth's divorce papers because Jessica needs Hogarth to do what she wants. So she's got to help Hogarth get what Hogarth wants. And then what about putting Kilgrave in this cell, in this hermetically sealed chamber, shocking him? torturing him, using his parents as leverage against him, also putting them in a cell with him with really no regard for their lives. I mean, she thinks that the, the wire is going to work. What happens as a result of that? Well, Louise, Kilgrave's mother, yeah. he has her kill herself in there. And again, that's because something went wrong in Jessica's plan, but she still allowed these people to be in a situation where that could happen. And... She acknowledges this to him. They have a fascinating exchange overtly about control. And she yep. says to him, yeah, well, this bitch is in control of you now, asshole. She is thrilled by the fact she's that she's it. been able to turn the tables and make him her puppet for once. And there's another layer to this, too, which is when Simpson tries to rescue Jessica and is going to blow up the building and she's like no we've got a clear hope there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of delays that happen because mm -hmm. we got a clear hope right. which means i have to get him to admit it which means oh yeah i kind of have to torture him also w at what point 
do you act in order to stop someone from doing something? Is that worth sacrificing Hope's court case? These are like questions that are not cut and dried, and that's part of why the story is good. Right, and Hope ultimately kills herself, yes. commits suicide so that Jessica is free of those questions and can just finally, because Hope is at this point too, nothing is more important to her than wanting Kilgrave dead. Yes. But that's a pretty gross moment and gross yes. feeling when you have to consider the possibility that you maybe can't do it all and right. you can't save everybody. Like right. that's a bad feeling. But again, as you're saying, the show's willingness to acknowledge that possible reality is part of what makes it effective. And then in the final episode of the season, Jessica sums up the story to that point with this. They say everyone's born a hero, but if you let it, life will push you over the line until you're the villain. Problem is, you don't always know that you've crossed that line. Maybe it's enough that the world thinks I'm a hero. That's really interesting and ambiguous and open-ended in, in a fascinating way. I like the moment when after Jessica has gotten hit by a truck, yeah. she says to Trish, you know, humanity sucks and they don't deserve saving. Like, she's <laughs> always pretty salty. Again, you know, she's not really... It's very <laughs> Ministry of Magic <laughs> line right there. She doesn't necessarily just wake up every morning wanting to help right. people. You know, yeah. she's, she has her own shit to deal with. Her own shit is what fuels her desire ultimately to help other people. But, you know, I really like that moment with Claire in yeah. the elevator and in the hospital when Claire says, guilt makes people do stupid shit. And Jessica says, I'm not guilty. It's not my fault. And Claire says, see, I hate that. I want everything to be my fault. Good or bad, it means I have some control. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Like, are you torturing yourself and forcing yourself to explore those feelings of guilt and shame? Because that's the only way if yeah. you just immerse yourself in any part of your own life, no matter how awful it might be. Is that the only way that you actually feel like you're in control of your own life? That's a pretty depressing thought, but I, I, I think the show asks us to consider that possibility. And again, one of the things that I like about this season of television is that the show never positions Jessica as the only source of insight. Right. If anything, it's often the opposite. A hundred percent. And Hogarth becomes in one moment a very unlikely source of wisdom when she says to Hope, when she's trying to convince Hope to accept a plea deal. And we're never, as viewers, siding with Hogarth or siding with that option. But we do have to think about what she says. You have a way out of an impossible situation. You're too young to know how rare that is. So take my word for it. The real world's not about happy endings. It's about taking the life you have and fighting like hell to keep it. In some ways, that is as much of the mission statement of the show as anything else. The real world's not about happy endings. It's about taking the life you have and fighting like hell to keep it. The life that Jessica has isn't the one that she wanted. It's yeah. not the one that she asked for, but it's hers and it's real. And now she has to do whatever she can to protect it and to eliminate the people who are trying to take it away from her. Before we move on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, Caviar. Life is too short for bad food. Damn right. For mediocre delivery. Yes. For settling for what they're slinging down the street. What are they slinging? You're hungry for something better. Let Caviar deliver. Caviar brings you quality eats like Suvla in San Francisco, oh. Toki Underground in Washington, D.C., Momofuku in New York. Delicious. Or my personal favorite here in L.A., John and Vinny's. I'm talking delicious yeah. meals delivered from the best local restaurants. You'll find exactly what you're craving, and Caviar delivers it all right to your door. It's food you want to feed your family, yes. your friends, yes. your coworkers, yes. yourself. 
So get the Caviar app or order online at trycaviar.com. Try Caviar today and pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with the code BINGE10. Valid until March 31st, 2018. Caviar delivers to the office, too. Yes. Wow, we're in an office right now. If you're working through lunch, planning a big meeting or event, let Caviar cater. Use that GPS tracking and watch your order approach your abode. Caviar is the way. The way. It's good. To get the quality food you want from your favorite restaurants. Remember, pay no delivery fee on your first caviar order. Plus, take $10 off Ooh. your first order of $30 or more with code BINGE10 at trycaviar.com. We are also brought to you by Microsoft Surface. When looking for a laptop, why not consider one with a powerful processor? The new Surface Pro is built for speed and has a battery that lasts all day. So you can play up to 13.5 hours of video without needing a charge. Say hello to getting more done and having a great Mm. time doing it. The Surface Pro is light enough to go anywhere you want with options for a removable keyboard in lots of new colors. Love that. It's touchscreen display response to your fingertips with great resolution too. And it also works with your iPhone. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. ever. And now... Back to binge mode. Jason? Yeah? It looks like you stripped your screws. Wouldn't be the first time. I suspect not. Because while many viewers were first introduced to Jessica Jones when the series hit Netflix in 2015, she's been a figure in the Marvel comic book world for much longer than that. So, please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Trish probably has one in her apartment. Trish has a nice apartment. (laughs) To teach us everything we need to know about the origins of the comic book character Jessica Jones and about her creator, Brian Michael Bendis. Guys, let's go back to 2000, the Y2K bug, in sync, the Backstreet Boys, and Marvel Comics. Just beginning to drag itself out wow. of the near No 98 degrees mention. Tough. Listen, <laughs> name anyone in that band besides Nick Lachey. Jeff Timmons. Loved him. Oh! I had pictures of him all over my wall when I was young. <laughs> Since the year is 2000, Marvel Comics just beginning to drag itself out of the near-apocalyptic disasters of the mid-1990s when oversaturation, poor planning, bad leadership, and various delays caused a cratering industry-wide of the comic book industry. In the fourth quarter of 1996 alone, Marvel Comics lost $400 million. The fourth quarter alone. That's not even the year. In just that amount, in just three months, they lost $400 million. Tom King, who's the writer of DC's Batman and Mr. Miracle, among others, was an intern at Marvel at the time, and he told me in an interview I did with him uh, early on in my Ringer career, people told me, yeah, this whole medium has two months left. Things were that dire. With literally nothing left to lose, Marvel began taking chances, like hiring Brian Michael Bendis, a relatively unknown who had mostly written like noir crime comics up to that point, they hired him to write just a little title called Ultimate Spider-Man, the company's first title in its modernized alternate continuity Ultimate Universe. The game will pay it off. Ultimate Spider-Man was critically acclaimed and crucially sold well, giving the Ultimate line and Marvel writ large a much needed boost. In 2001, Marvel gave Bendis Daredevil. That title has historically been a leaping off point for some of comics' biggest names. Stanley and Roy Thomas worked on Daredevil in the late 70s, Frank Miller, the iconic creator of Batman Year One, Dark Knight Returns, the Wolverine miniseries, and 300, among many others, cut his teeth on that title. And that same year, he pitched 
Alias, his story about a down-on-her-heels superhero turned private eye named Jessica Jones to Marvel president Bill Jemis. It was a decidedly adult story featuring complex, damaged characters who cursed a lot and definitely fucked in graphic fashion on the page. (laughs) Small aside, Alias issue number one ends with a two-page layout of Luke Cage tapping it from the back. Alabama-based printer American Color Graphics refused to print the issue because of, quote, offensive content. They didn't, however, specify what that content was. Anyway, Bendis told Jemis that, listen, I'm prepared to tone it down. Issue number one doesn't have to end with doggy-style sex on the page. You know, I can pull it back. And Jemis was like, no, we're running with this. Thus, Max was born. Max was Marvel's adult content imprint created specifically to release Alias. Bendis retconned Jessica Jones into Marvel history after being exposed to Strange Chemicals. Spoiler. Jones developed superpowers, strength, and a clumsy sort of flight. She has an uneventful hero career until she comes into contact with uh, Zebediah Kilgrave, who, as in the show, puts her under his control and tortures her. She's eventually rescued by the Avengers and is briefly associated with the team, but her run in the big leagues is brief and forgettable. She retires from superheroing in general. She just doesn't like the costumes and opens a detective agency called Alias. Bendis brought a fast-paced, kind of Sorkin-esque, rat-a-tat style of dialogue to comics pages, where once a page might feature mostly action with a few thought or dialogue bubbles sprinkled here and there. Bendis's pages were, like, almost shockingly covered with dialogue bubbles. It became almost like a a joke to some people who would want to criticize like his style. His version of of Marvel characters were quippy and self-referential in a really postmodern way. Some of my favorite Bendis stuff, honestly, is just like heroes sitting around having lunch and talking about like what their next move is because that stuff was great. Peter Parker is there. He's got his mask like up so it only uncovers his mouth and he's talking shit. It's just great stuff. The criticism of Bendis is that his characters didn't speak like themselves. They spoke like Bendis or whatever. This criticism is leveled at nearly every notable comic book creator throughout time, and it's also basically true, but who cares? His dialogue is great. Bendis's Marvel career was among the most consequential in the company's history. In addition to his work on Ultimate Spider-Man, which was widely at the time considered better than the Spider-Man titles of the canonical 616 universe that were coming out at the same time, he dissolved the classic Avengers team with Avengers Disassembled, built a wild new team on its ashes with new Avengers, decimated the mutant community with House of M, revealed that numerous notable heroes were actually alien shapeshifters and secret invasion, which led to Dark Reign, which was an upending of the status quo in which the bad guys ran the Marvel Universe for like a year. And that culminated in the destruction of Asgard and the revenge of the heroes in Siege. Then he took over all new X-Men and the uncanny X-Men, promising runs on, on those books, which in my opinion were kind of stymied by repeated crossover events that stopped the momentum. Bendis took his talents to DC in early 2018, and so the man who remade the Marvel Universe, whose first gig in the Marvel Universe was reimagining Spider-Man, will now take over duties on a little book called Superman, and oh yeah, also Action Comics. Can't wait to see what Bendis does at DC. Mal, you use sarcasm to distance people. And yet you're still here. I am! So let's head to the Metro General (laughs) Sept to bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite Jessica Jones season one. Easter eggs and nods to the wider Marvel verse and lore. You go first. Number one, the purple man. Zebediah Kilgrave. On the show, Kevin <laughs> Kilgrave often wears yep. purple and Jessica's flashbacks 
to her time under his control are tinged in purple hues. Yep. So he, as a character, is associated with the color purple. But in the comics, he is actually known as the Purple Man, and his skin is literally purple following a chemical encounter. Sweet Christmas! Ah, Luke Cage's <laughs> trademark catchphrase. He first uttered an early version of this, just Christmas, Christmas! <laughs> A Luke Cage Hero for Hire number eight published in April 1973. This remained his catchphrase for the next year and change until Bill Mantlo, creator of Rocket Raccoon of Guardians of the Galaxy fame, filled in on Power Man number 27 and gave the world sweet Christmas. And the rest is history. Number three. Joel. Yeah. In a season one flashback, we see Trish trying to convince Jessica to wear this abomination (laughs) this white leather costume and to assume the moniker jewel and trish is really lauding this costume's functionality you know it's lightweight it's highly durable it's waterproof it's flame resistant it'll hide your identity and then trish says jewel is a great superhero name and (laughs) i love this part so much jessica says jewel is a stripper's name a really slutty stripper if i wear that thing you're gonna have to call me camel toe (laughs) This scene does not just play for laughs. It is also a nod to a comic book arc in which Jessica actually did wear that costume and went by the moniker Jewel. She teamed up with other heroes in the Marvelverse over a multi-year span. Yeah. Claire Temple, a.k.a. the Night Nurse. Now, Claire Temple is a minor character from the Luke Cage comic books. And the character that Rosario Dawson plays is a composite between Claire Temple And the night nurse. The night nurse is one of my favorite, like, minor, 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 extremely minor Marvel Universe characters. Basically, the night nurse is this mysterious New York City-based caregiver who is a nurse. And she provides under-the-table medical care to heroes who need it. Like, so if Daredevil is out in the streets on a mission, gets his arm broken, whatever, he can't just walk into the emergency room because cops are looking for him. Right. Goes to the night nurse. She fixes him up. Love the night nurse. Also, not named after the Gregory Isaac song, but we'll just pretend that she was. Number five, Hellcat. Oh. In the Avengers comics, Patsy Walker a.k.a. Trish from the show. And we hear the name Patsy used often. We see a Patsy Walker comic a couple times. In the Avengers comics, Patsy Walker debuted as Hellcat, a superhero with martial arts skills and psychic powers. Could Trish's decision to take one of Simpson's red pills at the end of season one and her just exuberant response to this feeling of strength and of vigilante fighting forecast her future arc on the show Jessica Jones? Trish is already an excellent martial artist. We see her training multiple times. She is also deeply invested in pushing Jessica toward hero's work. And one of the voiceover lines from the season two trailer is, Jessica might not want a sidekick, but she needs one. Does Hellcat await? That'd be pretty cool. Number six, Nuke. Frank Simpson, with his terrible die job, plays Nuke. So Nuke is a villain who appears at the end of the classic Frank Miller, David Matsuchelli Daredevil arc, Born Again, which is maybe my favorite self-contained arc in all of comics. It's like incredible if you can pick up a graphic oh, wow. uh, novel of that. It's amazing. The art, David Matsuchelli's art is like 
fucking brilliant. It's great, great, great. Anyway, so Nuke was one of the subjects of the Weapon X program. Basically, various people in the Marvel Universe are trying to recreate Wolverine, trying to recreate Captain America because, you know, they created those guys, but then they went off and they do their own thing. We can't control them. What if we can make a super soldier that just does the shit that we want? And there you have Nuke, who is extremely strong, extremely hardy, is invulnerable to pain, and oh yeah, he's addicted to various drugs that give him his strength and power. And throughout the comics, like as Nuke is devastating Hell's Kitchen in an attempt to kind of flush Daredevil out, he's constantly like saying, give me a red, give me a red, and popping pills, popping pills. He like chews the pills like they're Tic Tacs. Yeah. It's weird. Why did the show change his name from Frank to Will? Is it because of Frank Castle? Because I already have yeah, a Frank. Yeah, too many Franks. Too many Franks. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, number seven. Bit of a hodgepodge here. Numerous references to other Marvel events in New York City. We hear the green guy, obviously, the Hulk, the incident. Ever since those guys, quote, saved the city, I saw my mother crushed to death. All of these lines reference the events at the end of the first Avengers film. We also see a, a little kid dressed up as Captain America running through the park. Similarly, we see Sergeant Mahoney in the precinct when Jess goes to dump the manually decapitated head on the table. Poor Ruben. R.I.P. Ruben. We hear Claire refer to her friend. Obviously, that is Daredevil. We get many other references like this across the season from a name drop for Angela DeToro, a.k.a. White Tiger. But those ones that pertain to Daredevil and to the Avengers are are some of the the most fun because they're kind of like dusted across the whole season and and also some of the most notable. Jason? Yes? Question for you. Yeah. Would you put day drinking under experience or special Experience for sure. Might be a better question to ask this week's winner, because every episode we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most this week, and this time we are rewarding our champion's purse, paid out in fifths of wild turkey, to Jessica Jones. Great character. Great character and a great woman. Cheers to you, Jessica, on International Women's Day and every day. Wonder Woman rightfully gets a lot of credit for showing that female superheroes can kick ass too, but Jessica Jones... Deserves to be part of that conversation just as a, as a person who overcame trauma to really become a stronger person who overcame really like a terrible, truly terrible, tortuous experience that went on for we don't even really know how long. Physical violations, emotional violations, mental violations, spiritual violations. She was raped. She was yeah. tormented. She was robbed of her own free will and ability. And she's taken the power back. Yeah. She's also not the only woman on the show who is absolutely kicking ass and dominating. You know, Trish and Claire are total badasses, too. The show in general is really a showcase for female empowerment in a way that particularly today in this day and age is really notable and worth applauding. And Jess is, we should say. Not a perfect role model. Like, she's a heavy she's drinker. She's a heavy drinker. Some... Lives like a slop. I don't think Jess qualifies for renter's insurance based <laughs> on the state of her apartment. No. She is not perfect, but she is an independent thinker and she fights for what she wants. And she and Luke fucked so hard that they broke bed and all of that is worth applauding. Shouts to you, Jess. Shouts to you. <laughs> all right, friends. God didn't record this podcast. Oh. The devil did. We're going to find him. 
We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, and Kind of Thrones this spring. Yeah. And then you will join us again next Thursday for the latest installment of Binge Mode Weekly. Until then, remember, we don't give a bag of dicks what kinky shit you're into. Just be into it quietly. I know for a fact that this person, by the means of the Cruciatus curse, tortured the horror, Frank Longbottom. What is the name? Barty Crouch. <gasps> <gasps> Junior. <laughs>